chapter 8, verses 62, thus reads God's holy and inerrant word. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. At that time, Solomon held a feast, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. Before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, fourteen days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for servant David and for Israel, his people. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me one more time for God's blessing upon the Word? O Lord, we pray and ask that You would attend the preaching and reading of Your Word. O Lord, that You would open eyes and stop our ears. May we joyfully proclaim Your Word upon hearing it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And brothers and sisters, I am quite fond of ceremonies. What do I mean by that? I mean, such as graduation exercises, weddings, or celebrations of major milestones or life events. I enjoy getting together with other believers, usually whether I know them or not, and praising God for His faithfulness and enjoying the bounty of His provision in the feast that often follows. Now, all such ceremonies, usually when they're done by Christians, begin with prayer, maybe some singing, an appropriate message. And particularly when you think of weddings. There's a solemnity that's attached, especially when those realize what God is doing in their midst. Now from a small local wedding, even consider earlier this year, King Charles coronated as the King of England. Pomp and circumstances abounded. And in those moments, we feel the weight of history, don't we? Whether it's the local small town wedding that will bear historical weight for all those gathered, or the crowning of a monarch. These moments become etched into our minds. And the joy of celebration is all the sweeter the more you appreciate the moment that has just passed. So in our text today, we have such a moment. The people of Israel are celebrating a feast in the presence of God. 1 Kings 8 presents a movement from dedicating the temple with numerous sacrifices and offerings of atonement to Solomon reminding them of God's promise that he's been faithful to their father David. This is followed by a wonderful sevenfold prayer in which Solomon leads the people of God in praising and petitioning God's graciousness. And Solomon blesses the assembly based on the covenant with Moses. And finally, there is this conclusion, this penultimate day in the history of God's people up until this point, and it concludes with a meal. This meal represents peace with God, which you and I desperately need and need to be reminded of. 
We need this peace because we're sinners. And peace is offered because God is merciful. This meal is a feast of peace for all God's people resulting in their joyful response. This meal is a feast of peace for all of God's people resulting in their joyful response. We will look at this text in three parts in verses 62 to 63, the the type of feast. In verses 64 and 65, the circumstances of the feast. And then finally, verse 66, the response to the feast. So first, the type of feast. Look again at verse 62. And the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices for the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. This type of feast, a sacrifice of peace and thanksgiving for what the Lord has done. But when you read what a peace offering is, or your translation may say fellowship offering or free will offering, what is it? We, we read in Leviticus 3 and 7 that this is a, a, a sacrifice that wasn't required, but it was freely given as a response to what God has done. The priest would take an animal without defect from the herd, and this was to teach that God demands perfection. Then he would, the priest would lay hands on it, signifying a transfer of sins and identification of the worshiper with the animal, and the animal would be sacrificed and its blood sprinkled around the altar. And part of the altar animal would be offered as a whole burnt offering to the Lord, while the rest of it would be eaten by the worshiper. This meal would have, would have to be consumed in a particular way, and within a particular time frame. But the significance of the meal was that it was offered voluntarily. It was a, a, thank, a, a vow of thanksgiving, a feast, a, a sacrifice of thankful praise for what God has done. And this would have been, imagine taking the best of your livestock after already sacrificing the best of your livestock for the Day of Atonement or any of the other sacrifices. And then taking what's left, the, the next great bull, the next goat, the next sheep, and offering it again in thanksgiving. This was a, a wonderful response. And this response of the people of God to joyful worship, being in the presence of God, gives us a a view into their hearts. often gives us a view into our hearts. How do we respond in thanksgiving to what the Lord has done for us? How often do you thank God for what He has done? One of the practices that I've always been encouraged to do, though I'm often delinquent in, is creating a diagnostic of thanksgiving, is recording all the various things throughout the year the Lord has done for my family. I think of my family having food every day. Rest, safety, shelter, the various things God has done in answering our prayers. Imagine how many times you have called out to the Lord and how He has faithfully answered. And these people gathered around Solomon in the temple at this time are struck by how God has been faithful time and time again. In joyful response, they offer 120,000 sheep. They offered 22,000 bulls, this extravagant display and outpouring of thanksgiving. This feast this is a type. This, the type of feast is a feast of peace. It's an offering of thanksgiving. Well, well, what does it mean? Well, in the context of kings, the weight of the Torah 
through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and Samuel bears upon our text. God has been faithful. He has promised to dwell with His people in a permanent way. And one of the beauties of God dwelling with His people in a permanent way is He is establishing, this is where I will be. Come and worship. Come and be with me. And not just stand in the outskirts, but have a meal with me. In the context of 1 Kings 8, the king of Israel has assembled God's people to worship. They've offered sacrifices of atonement. They've been declared righteous. They're reminded of the, the Davidic covenant. They're reminded of the prayers of God. They've been given a benediction. And, and you know, children, have you ever thought, how would you end a worship service if you were the Lord? Would you just send your subjects off? If you were the king of kings, would you just send your people off? Or would you do what the Lord our God does? This radical nature of this kind of communion that the Lord goes from the throne room to the dining room, inviting His people to feast and fellowship with Him. This intimacy of God with His people. This peace offering is nothing less than the people of God recognizing all that He has done for them. Rejoicing in remembrance for all that He has promised to do. Reflecting on all the things God will do. They come to a feast they have not prepared with food that was given to them from fields and places that they did not plant nor establish. They come to a king, come to the Lord, who has every reason to condemn them and yet spares them. They come as beggars and come before them as a feast that has been declared They come as beggars. And before them is a feast that declares not only the blessings of God, but their peace with God. And this feast of peace is a cause of great joy. Well, this type of feast, this peace offering, what are the circumstances around the feast in verses 64 to 65? We see an uncommon worship service which included all of God's people. Verse 64, on the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of peace offerings. Because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. At the same time, Solomon held a feast, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, fourteen days. You see the, so the circumstances of this worship, this feast. The text says that the bronze altar before the Holy of Holies where burnt offerings and these offerings were to be offered was too small because of the sheer volume of offerings. And the, the typical length of time at the, uh, this feast would have been was been seven days and that wasn't long enough. They had to double it. God's people are overwhelmed with gratitude. The burnt grain and peace offerings were offered unto God in recognition that God has dealt with their sin and their misery. God has provided flocks for them to offer. He is, and God's people are merely offering back a small taste of what God has provided to them. This generosity is a display of their thankfulness. That they're giving back all that God has given to them. And this thankfulness is expressed in giving to God what He's given to you. You think of all the things the Lord has blessed you with, whether it be time, talent, or treasure. 
That since all things are a gift and a blessing from God, all things belong to Him, and He graciously accepts those gifts. Now notice that it isn't a small part of the nation that worships in thanksgiving. But the circumstances of the feast include all of God's people. The whole nation was represented there. From one end of Israel to the other, everyone has come, or representatives of everyone, has come to worship God. And this is one of the the most beautiful things about the church, isn't it? That there is no one excluded from the worship of God. That there is no nation excluded, there is no tongue excluded, there is no exclusion based on anything you can imagine. Skin color, disability, age, nothing. All are welcomed and encouraged. And what's even more remarkable, as New Covenant believers, we have greater access than they could. Because this is only representatives of all the nations of Israel, all of the nation of Israel, representatives of all the tribes and people. They could only offer 120,000 sheep, because that's how many came. But for us, as we worship God now, we all can enter into God's presence, and we, through union with Christ, worship with our brothers and sisters throughout the whole world. This glorious covenant community of God, that the nation worshiped God there, and the globe, and all the brothers and sisters here worship God this day, and no one is prohibited from coming to worship Solomon, and earlier in the chapter, commanded them to come. And they came. And Christ commands us to come, doesn't He? To worship on the Lord's day. He urges us. And this is, you read the Gospels. And His invitations and His urgings. Come unto Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Come and commune with the triune God. Christ proclaims. This feast of peace is for all of God's people. Now the circumstances may have changed from the old covenant sacrifice to the new covenant sufficient sacrifice of Christ. But the principle remains. This is a feast of fellowship between God and His people. All of them. That God's people are given a unique privilege to not only be in the throne room of God, but in His very dining room, as it were, to meet in fellowship with God where there is no distinction made between God's people for all are one with Christ. And this fellowship meal represents God fellowshipping with His people and the unity of God's people together. It is a glorious feast that looks forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we get a taste of that feast, don't we? The Lord's Supper. Where we commune with God. Where we have a meal set before us by our Lord Jesus Himself. And as we partake of that meal, it's not a a personal dinner with Jesus. It's the communion of the saints communing with their God. And we have here a foretaste, a picture of what that looks like. We've seen the type of feast, the circumstances at the feast. Now, what is the result of this feast? The joyful response of the people of God. On verse 66, on the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for His servant David and for Israel, His people. People are reflecting as they're packing up their tents to to go home, even as we consider as we leave worship today. How did they get here? Well, they've 
been declared righteous, their sins have been forgiven. They're considering the Davidic dynasty that the time of judges is over, a righteous ruler reigns. They're seeing Solomon, David's son and heir upon the throne. And they're wondering, is this the righteous king? So through the atonement led by their anointed king, they praise and petition the God of the covenant, the God of creation. Now the God who has paid for their sins, who has given them a king, answers their prayers and blesses them, sets a table before them, that the God who blesses them again and again and again offers them more grace. This is a reminder to us, isn't it, that God is just as gracious in the Old as He is in the New Testament. That God has always saved sinners. He's always brought sinners near to Him. Why are the people so joyful? Because of what God has done for them. They're sent away on the eighth day. No, the eighth day is a pointing forward to a new creation. The people rejoice in their king. That Solomon presents to us a type of Christ, the priest king who leads the people of God into the presence of God. There's a very real sense that when you enter into worship, you're not led by worship by whoever's in the pulpit. You're led in worship by the King of Kings, that Christ himself leads his people into the presence of God. He leads worship. Jesus is the only worship leader of God's people, and the people rejoice in their king. Now we know Solomon was a flawed and failed king. He was a great sinner. Thanks be to God, our king doesn't commit adultery with a thousand wives. He has one wife, the church. He is one spouse who he's faithful to. And that's the, the beauty of our Lord. And as the people rejoiced in Solomon, how much more ought we to rejoice in Christ our Savior? Brothers and sisters, do you consider that? When you come to worship, do you prepare your hearts? I'm going to hear from Jesus Christ. I won't see Him with my eyes, but I will see Him by faith. Do you rejoice as you leave worship that I have not only heard my Savior, but His promises and His blessings, His warnings, His urgings, His pleadings to me that I heard on Sunday will carry forward. Do you long to be and hear Christ? You know, you think of the, the feast that, last, that had to be doubled. That's a revelation of the heart of God's people at that time that they so enjoyed the blessing and loved the blessing of God so much, they were so thankful, so full of generous hearts, they wanted to double worship. Could you imagine when your new pastor comes and he preaches, and he preaches an hour, and you say, preach again, proclaim again, let's sing another song, I want to be in worship longer, because your hearts are caught up in what we're doing. Worshipping the triune God. Brothers and sisters, the people rejoice in their king and the people rejoice in what the Lord has done for David. He has done what he said he would do. His servant has been raised up to sit on David's throne. As we studied the Davidic covenant in Sunday school, I was struck again by God's faithful promises that he will establish his man upon the throne. And as you, many of you are probably familiar, 
Well, Solomon failed. Well, maybe it will be his son. And then his son failed. And then his son failed. And then again and again and again. And the question could be asked, was God faithful to his covenant promise? He was faithful to David in establishing Solomon. But did the promise end there? Is God's promise is only good for a generation or two? Well, we know. As the Gospel of Matthew opens up, that Christ is the heir of David. And we know that he is seated upon the throne of David forever and always. He is the king of kings. And as the people were marked that, well, Solomon, as they rejoice in Solomon, he sits on David's throne. How much more should our joy, our hearts cry out in thanksgiving? That Christ is on the throne of David, which means there's no need for any temple in Jerusalem. There is no need for a nation, a theocratic nation, to be reestablished in Israel. We're part of the kingdom of God. Our king already reigns. The people rejoice in what the Lord has done for them. From slavery through the wilderness into a land of promise. And you and I have a greater king with better promises. Consider your king. His body was the true temple that was destroyed and in three days raised up. His blood was true atonement. What 120,000 sheep could never do. They could never cleanse one sin. Children, have you considered that? You can sacrifice every animal on earth that would not pay for a single sin. But the sufficient blood of Christ pays for the sins of all of His people. And if you call upon His name, even now, your sins are paid for by the blood of the Lamb. His prayers were always answered and His benedictions always efficacious. And we get a foretaste of the marriage supper. As your heart full of gladness in the presence of the Lord, Do you consider and contemplate this Lord Jesus Christ we so often study, but do you love the God you study? Do theology and doxology meet in your soul? Does knowledge and praise, doctrine and devotion, as you consider the God you know, is it the God you love? And as the more you love the Lord, does it cause you to want to know Him more? And the more you know Him, does it lead you to love Him more? You think of, I think of, when I first met my wife and how beautiful she was to me and now many years later that her beauty has changed into a radiance and as you consider Christ when you first met him even if you don't know the day or the hour as you first began to realize you love Jesus Christ that first beautiful that when you first saw him as beautiful is he still beautiful Has He become radiant to you? As you've walked through your life as a Christian, has Christ maintained that glory before you as the radiant King of kings who has done all for you? Now you may be in a season and you may ask, well, what joy is there for me? Yes, the Israelites, they've been established in the land. Their their sins are forgiven. All these wonderful things about them. And yes, you may even be there and say, yes, all the people that are, have a great life right now, nothing going on that's wrong. They can be joyful, but not me. Economic calamity, homes being burned down, children being taken back up to the Lord. 
parents suffering and dying, calamity and death, on and on and on. And the, the question can be, how can I be joyful when my life doesn't match the joy that is set before us in our text? Well, I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, that our joy is never tied to our circumstances. And consider Psalm 126, which is a song of ascents. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream that our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Now this was written during the time of Israelite captivity. They were slaves in Babylon, exiles, crushed, destroyed. The temple was gone. And they're being brought back. In verse 4, bring back our captivity, O Lord, as streams in the south. They reflect upon the exile. Here is what they say. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. The Israelites in our text had been through much. They'd lived through the time of the judges. They'd been through the civil war between Saul and David. And they would live through more suffering and pain. And amidst all those circumstances, and amidst of all the circumstances of Psalm 126, those who suffer, those who reap tears, will sow joy. Those who sow to- joy, those who sow tears will reap joy. And there is this wonder to that, isn't there? That the Israelites, amidst all their circumstances, are joyful because they're, pro- they're viewing and seeing their king. How much more so, dear brothers and sisters, are we the people of God? After knowing Christ, Our text closes with the people of God going to their tents, completing the Feast of Tabernacles. From here, they would go back to their homes throughout Israel, much as you and I will leave this place and go back to our homes. So I submit to you a question. How will you return home? Will you return with the king's peace? And I ask this in two senses, to the unbeliever and to the believer. First, to you outside of God's people, do you have peace with your God? Have you contemplated the things of the Lord? Have you seen and heard all that He has done for you? He has provided you with life. Now, it may not be the life you want, but it is a life that has brought you into His presence today to be with His people. And that is a gift that costs you nothing, yet may gain you everything. The Lord this day offers you peace with Him, all of your sins paid for, all of your debt removed, justice fully satisfied, because of the crucifixion of the true and perfect Lamb of God. Dear one, depart from your sin. Turn from iniquity. And flee to Christ, whose arms are lifted to you to receive you. Spare not a moment longer. Do not linger for a second. Because either you will come to the King with glad adoration, or He will come for you. And you will flee like the princes in Revelation and plead for the mountains to fall upon you. Secondly, to the believer, do you have the king's peace? 
And by that I mean, do you feel at peace with God? How is your fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And if you're like me, peace can often be fleeting. You may wonder, has God still loved me? Is my, are my sins still covered? Is God done with me after this last sin? Does my Savior still call me friend? Is the Spirit still my helper and comforter? Well, when you have such doubts, remember our text. A feast of peace for all God's people, resulting in their joyful response. This is a feast of peace, fellowship, and thanksgiving. Peace because there's no longer any enmity between God and His people through Christ's atoning blood. Fellowship because God has set the table. You do not just come to the feast. You are brought by God, cleansed by Christ, clothed with righteousness, anointed by His Spirit. Your invitation to fellowship with God was written by the Father, purchased by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. Be thankful and joyful. You may not have a subjective peace with God, but if you lay hold of Christ, your peace is as certain as His death and resurrection. Rejoice for what God has done and what He will do. And amidst all circumstances, whether you're in the valley, the shadow of death, or amidst green pastures, I urge you to echo the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4. He writes, Rejoice again. I say rejoice. Be anxious for nothing, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray.